We're back with episode 130. Today is Friday the 13th of December 2019. And before we get started, uh, just a sort of a heads up on what's going on with this season's final episodes. Uh, I think we're pretty much there. Um, This holiday season sort of crept up on me out of nowhere. And my hope is to do one of two and optimally two of two things. uh, To do one more regular episode on Tuesday next week, followed by hopefully a proper season finale that I'd like to do with my two founding partners over at Hogan Co. Um, I don't want to make any promises just yet. Uh, We do have a pretty crazy week up ahead, but if all goes according to plan, then hopefully next Friday we will indeed do a three-way discussion for the season four finale. Hey, if you're in the autonomous vehicle or mobility space, don't forget we've just recently launched our new AV and mobility strategy consulting firm, Hogan Co. We've got partners in Amsterdam, Paris, and right here in San Francisco, as well as associates around the world, including Boston and Philadelphia. All of our members are either PhDs, attorneys, engineers, or startup founders with extensive experience in the autonomous vehicle and mobility space. If you have any questions or you'd like to chat further, please check out our new website at hogandco.com or visit us on all social media at hogandco. That's H-O-A-G-A-N-D-C-O. All right, well, let's dive in and get started because today we've got a great conversation with Bob Lee from RTI up in Toronto. Um, So RTI essentially create a framework that enables other companies to create all sorts of connectivity systems, both within vehicles, but also externally. So for instance, V2V, that's vehicle to vehicle, as well as V2X, vehicle to infrastructure, and much more besides. But rather than try to give you a concise summary here, at which I will likely fail, Let's just get started right now. 35 minutes with Bob Lee of RTI begins now. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Three, two, one. And we're live. Bob, good of you to join us from somewhere in Canada. That's all I know. <laughs> yes, Toronto. I'm in Toronto. And thank right, you, cool. Very good. So, um, all right. So, you know, as, as we discussed a bit offline, uh, you know, I'm certainly interested to learn a bit about your background and how it got you here to RTI. And then, frankly, you know, one of the great things about doing these conversations is getting so engaged and learning so much about what's going on. But in this case, it's a bit different for me because, frankly, um, you'll get to teach me a bit kind of from scratch. I'm really eager to learn everything about RTI and, um, but love to hand it off to you and get the whole story. Sure. Yeah. So my, my uh, educational background is in engineering um, focused on control and communications systems, which um, have I've applied somehow uh, throughout my career. Um, but I haven't worked a whole lot in automotive. Uh, we had a lot of auto co- automotive customers at one of my previous uh, jobs doing systems integration for automotive. But really, it's the it's the building control systems, building IoT systems, and working on embedded systems that I've that I bring to this job and this experience. 
Um, I started art at RTI about, I think it's four years ago now. And at that time, it was a question about, okay, what market should we go after? And we just started to get traction in automotive. And I said, well, this autonomous vehicles looks promising for RTI. I had a couple customers um, and it's proven to be to be true, it's been a very exciting last four years where I've been working to develop the autonomous vehicle market, specifically around the traditional automotive customers as well as startup EVs and and build that market for for RTI. So, um, you know, the last 10 years, that's the kind of thing I've done is looking at new markets, either as an entrepreneur or as an engineer, um, or in my role here as a market development director, try and find out how to apply technology and how to um, make it fit within the uh, within the market need and and you know build a business around that. Right. So so my understanding then so and this is largely based. Obviously, I, heard, I saw the uh, the press release you guys sent out. What December? 11, oh, actually, it's dated today. <laughs> For some reason, I thought I saw it yesterday. Um, but but so my understanding is that your real kind of bread and butter right now for the AV industry is primarily uh, connectivity. Right. So specifically, I guess not just V to V, but rather V to X. So infrastructure as a whole, is that correct? It's uh, that's part of it, but it's really connectivity within the car as well. Um, so uh, RTI develops um, a product we call connects connects DDS. It's based on a standard called DDS or data distribution um, service. And, and what we provide to our customers is essentially a framework uh, or an architecture to allow them to connect all their applications together wherever they may be and do it really easily and simply and also do it in a way that's very robust, reliable, that's suitable for production in mission and safety critical systems. Histor historically, we've worked in uh, aerospace and defense. That's where the standard was created and where a, a lot of RTI's previous growth has come from. Um, now we're still in that business, but we're focused on industrial Internet of Things as well, uh, specifically automotive, healthcare, um, industrial manufacturing and, and energy and a few other related markets. So within automotive, it's it's really our fastest growing commercial market. Um, we've gone from when I started a few years ago to a handful of companies, maybe two or three to now over 50 commercial programs related to autonomous vehicles. And, and what we provide is this, this software that gets deployed into the vehicle, into safety areas of the vehicle, into sensor fusion applications within the vehicle, but also to backend systems doing teleoperations or fleet management. Um, we have a lot of control center applications, so manning, managing a whole bunch of systems out in the field somewhere, and whether they're mobile or fixed asset, you know, how do you connect with them? How do you manage what they're doing? How do you get data from them? So really, at the end of the day, it's about sharing data between all of these different software systems, whether they're embedded in a car or, you know, on in the cloud or on the internet or, or some other um, network and making it easy for, for developers to, um, to do that. Interesting. All right. So how would, is it a valid question even to ask how this compares or contrasts to some of the other systems, which at least to my ears sound at least somewhat related. So for instance, um, what here technologies have been working on, or for example, when Mercedes released a few years ago, the vehicle to vehicle connectivity as between, well, just E-Class Mercedes, I guess it was, and more recently Volkswagen with their Golf. Um, how much of an overlap yeah. is there? Uh, and, and I guess what I'm really getting at is, is this sort of a complement to what other manufacturers are doing or is this an alternative or is that not even a valid question? 
So our customers are mainly OEMs um, and tier ones. They're really the person doing the company doing systems integration, putting the whole system together. So if you're building a, mm -hmm. a V2V system um, like you're talking about, that's between cars, uh, we wouldn't provide you with that V2V system, but you may use our software to build that V2V system. So we'd be at a lower layout than the staff. We aren't a um, fit for purpose ah, platform or more of a generic um, you know, connectivity solution that can be applied to many, many different use cases. Um, so you, uh, you're basically the building blocks then to allow other companies to build what they need. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, so we could compare it to Ross and, and Autosar, for example, you're familiar with those frameworks. They, uh, use DDS as part of their standard. Um, so DDS is included in that standard. So you can use DDS to build to build those systems. We also have customers that just build their own platform on, D on Connects DDS directly, where you know they want to have very fine game control about how the data is shared, how it behaves. They maybe have some high performance requirements, or, or maybe they want to have control over um, you know, how the system responds to errors or, or specific events, and they want that, that, um, that level of detail in their system that they get from using a connectivity framework like uh, Connects DDS. I see. So to, to use a sort of web development analogy any, anyway, it's really essentially a framework is what it is. Yes. Yep, absolutely. Got it. I see. So now that I understand that a bit better, so thank you for that. <laughs> um, so let's dive into, yeah, if you'd like to talk about this press release regarding uh, that you just released about your collaboration with uh, Xpeng Motors in China. What's that all about? Uh, so they're one of one of the 50 customers that I mentioned. Um, we've actually been uh, fortunate to work with a lot of different customers and and have different approaches and see how they're addressing this market. But unfortunate that all of these are you know leading edge uh, projects and most customers want to be in stealth mode. Um, so we've recently uh, actually had enough customers further for enough further enough far enough along in their development that they're going to be launching into market fairly soon and they're ready to um, have a, a press release with us. So um, X Motors is, is one of the first um, and we expect to have at least one or two more before CES, but we've been working with them for a couple of years. They've built their um, vehicle platform for autonomy and they've built it on uh, connects DDS, which allows them to have a high degree of flexibility for the future where they can start with, you know, level two autonomy features today, but incrementally build more and more into a level three and, you know, even eventually into a level four system if that's what they want to do. And that's, that's the power of a framework that it can meet your current needs. So you don't have to develop your own in-house, you know, connectivity solution or communication protocol, but it also, uh, a good one will also prepare you for the future in that, you know, you're going to have requirements a year or two down the road that you haven't thought of yet. And, and since we've been working at this for, you know, more than a decade building autonomous systems in all kinds of industries, we probably have the features that you're going to need. Um, so that's really what it's about is, is they're using our software to build their framework for, for their vehicles that are going to be, you know, increasingly more and more autonomous as, as they roll out more mm -hmm, capability. Mm -hmm. And so how broad reaching are the use cases for which this framework can be used? So I'm totally just thinking out loud here. So recently, I don't know if you heard on the podcast, um, I had a real, cool chat with Alex Thibault from Vulog, right? So they develop essentially the the backbone for all sorts of different sharing plat, um, sharing applications, whether it's scooter sharing, car sharing, and so on. 
And if I sort of extrapolate what I'm understanding insofar as the connectivity functionality that your platform enables, your, your, I should say your framework enables, I'm wondering the extent to which this can be applied from a connectivity point of view to all sorts of optimization questions, right? Whether it's, um, you know, optimizing route planning or, or even some, something with respect to traffic density insofar as uh, road pricing, congestion pricing, like what are the use cases at, at sort of the broadest level where this can be applied? Um, it, I guess that depends on what industry you're looking in. At the broadest level, we're looking at all of the industrial Internet of Things, um, mostly on the mission and safety critical side. So if the data is really important and your systems cannot fail um, and there's a reasonable level of complexity in your system, you can think of an autonomous vehicle is fairly complex in that there is data moving all over the place within the car and then offboard on the car. It's not just you know, like your your um, smartwatch app where it's sending data to the cloud and getting data back. That's a fairly simple right. uh, IoT application. So you need some reasonable level of complexity. And, and that's, that's where we shine um, because our product is designed to handle that complexity and solve some of these complex challenges. So within transportation, as a, a mm-hmm. broad view, certainly within these autonomous and semi-autonomous vehicles, whether they're you know cars or trains or trucks or whatever they are, uh, uh, application there, sensor fusion is probably our um, leading application with most of our customers that are trying to solve the big data challenge. Like how do I move big data around really efficiently mm-hmm. and, and really quickly? Mm-hmm. Um, but then it's, it's, it's more than that because when you think of a future with a lot of connected vehicles and connected devices in, you know, just think of a smart city that has roadside infrastructure and lots of vehicles on the road and even people with their apps connected so you can tell where they are um, with their smartphones so you can tell where they are, then um, uh, connects can handle all of that complexity and manage all these different data sources and and give you a rational way of thinking about all kinds of data coming from everywhere that may evolve over time and then how do I build applications based on that um, so then that includes like you mentioned vehicle infrastructure includes road management includes ra- traffic management basically anything that's interfacing with the real world that has some time criticality to it. We're not good at databases. We're not good at enterprise IT solutions. We're not good at simple device to cloud solutions. But when you look at most industrial applications, there's a lot more complexity than that. And and that's where where you want uh, something like a a DDS framework um, to, to When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply solve those that complexity i see okay so i this reminds me of a report which is admittedly a little dated now this is back from may of 2018 that i had that i had stumbled across um they, they, i feel like depending on when you ask different groups of people with respect to the importance of say vehicle to infrastructure generally so v to x or for that matter 5g you get a lot of different answers insofar as the necessary importance to autonomous vehicle applications uh, in this particular report, it had said something like there was 75% or excuse me, 71% consensus that V to X is kind of a prerequisite for a, 
for a fully fleshed out autonomous vehicle future. And as far as 5G is concerned, contrary to all the all the fluffery out there, really just sort of 38% of experts agreed that this was a necessary thing. Um, what are your thoughts on either of those? It's it's hard to imagine that um, V to X is necessary, um, or it's be unfortunate if it is necessary in, in that there's a lot of complexity in rolling that out globally. Uh, we do have certain markets and companies that perhaps can roll it out themselves and it'd be just as effective if it was, as if it was standardized across automakers, um, say perhaps Toyota in Japan and maybe GM in the United States. They just have enough vehicles out there that they could deploy their own solution. Um, but we've seen that getting coordination between governments and manufacturers and then globally makes a V to X solution very difficult. And if that's prerequisite for all of these autonomous vehicle applications, then then we're in for a really, really rough ride. It's hard to imagine how that's going to happen in time. So I think there are lots and lots of use cases for autonomy. And maybe this isn't this certainly isn't level five autonomy. That's decades away, but level two, level three, level four autonomy that don't need V to X, that don't need V to I, that don't need V to V. Um, but perhaps what they do need is a level of connectivity to um, do something like teleoperation. So, uh, so if if we need um, if we need this regulation to come in before we get autonomous vehicles deployed widely, then I don't see how that's going to happen in time. But I think there's a different approach that most um, companies and most OEMs are taking that that we certainly see as, as much more viable. And that's focusing on the connectivity uh, to the vehicles. And, and if you're deploying something like level four uh, autonomous vehicle, you need teleoperation to be able to manage that. Um, and so if you can imagine that you have a, a level four vehicle that has a certain um, certain profile of what it does, perhaps it's a ride sharing app that that uh, supports ride sharing within a certain geographic region, you know, a few blocks or, or a city like we see with, with Waymo today. Um, if there's no driver in that car, it's going to eventually run into situations that it cannot handle. If you have good connectivity where, um, uh, someone can uh, observe the car at all times. Maybe you've got an operator looking at, you know, five to 10 or 15 different cars at all times. And when it runs into a situation it can't, can't understand, control could be turned over to that operator remotely and he can give instructions to the car to maneuver around, you know, a, a large pothole or perhaps it's construction sign that it hasn't seen before. And, and that's going to allow us to solve a lot of the cases that um, fully autonomous vehicles can't handle yet, but still allow us to deploy a viable solution that has a good business case. So I, I don't think that V to X is required, but I think backend connectivity is. So can you do that over 4G or do you need 5G? I'm, I'm not sure. Um, I, I think there's still we're still working on that. But I think that backend connectivity is going to be key for any autonomous vehicle with no, you know, dedicated driver. In mm -hmm. it. And without getting too much into it, I mean, j just to clarify, I think a point that's often missed, even to the extent that there might be an argument in favor of the necessity of 5G, even there, the issue has nothing at all to do really with its promised faster throughput, but rather it's reduced latency, correct? I mean, that would be the only practical benefit that I can imagine. Is that not true? 
Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, I think there's a lot of business benefits to 5G and a lot more you can do. But in terms of a minimal viable solution to deploy an autonomous vehicle, I think it's really about latency. Um, I don't think you really need live video feed um, <laughs> uh, continuous from the car to the back end. It'd be nice. But I think there's other ways around that. So, uh, you know, if you can get down the latency down to a uh, sub second reliably, um, then I think I think you can handle most situations and certainly enough to deploy in into uh, into the into real world business viable solutions. Um, and then we go. from there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and just think, thinking out loud here, if only because I happen to know the founder um, of Starsky Robotics. And so that was one of the kind of the questions or the, you know, the, the, the thoughts that crossed my mind was if you've effectively got remote drivers for the first and last mile, as it were, and indeed to oversee the entire journey. Right. I mean, you've effectively turned trucks into, well, road going drones, I guess. Um, and so that was kind of one of my concerns. It's, you know, if ever there was an example of where you need really low latency applications, that's surely it. Um, I don't know. What do you what do you think? I mean, is how is this even I mean, granted, this is probably a question for them, but like just thinking out loud academically, at least that does seem to be a limiting factor. Right. The you would need extremely low latency for any such application as that. Yeah, yeah, but I think I think the key here is that the vehicle has to handle most situations, 80 to 90% of situations or more already. So it's not that you need low latency at all times. So if you're driving on the highway and it's a well-known use cases, then perhaps it's okay if you don't have 5G coverage there. Um, but the other thing is if you if you have use cases where you do need that low latency, which I agree with you, there's probably lots of them in the last mile driving and, and driving through the city. Right. You don't want to have multi-second lag on that. Um, you can deploy selectively, like we're not going to deploy to every city immediately. So if you have 5G in certain cities um, as an early prototype, you can deploy solutions into those cities and prove the value, improve the business case before we start investing in 5G everywhere. So I think it's the sort of thing that can happen incrementally. We don't need it everywhere. We just need to start somewhere. Well, no, I can totally get behind that. I agree. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned, a, you at least kind of alluded to this notion of standardizations and that sort of thing. So I want to kind of shift gears just for a moment. Um, so what do you think about that? I mean, just expanding on this idea of standardization. So I don't know if you've heard me say in the past, um, I am so I'm a huge proponent of the need eventually to continue to borrow and learn as much as possible from the aviation industry, uh, even to the extent that eventually, especially as we reach level four, and as you say, in a few decades, level five, but even for level four, we're eventually going to need really the equivalent of an FAA, but for autonomous vehicle deployment. So I just of course, call it the FAVA. Uh, simply put, that we're going to need proper standardization, everything from the systems used, the testings, um, everything, right? And, and I'm wondering, is that something you would get behind insofar as, yes, please, this would really help what we do at RTI, or is this something you'd see as a potential hindrance? Um, I'd say from a business perspective, we're probably fairly neutral on that. Um, if anything, it would help. Uh, we have a lot of experience in aerospace and defense and working with standardization. And, and that's one of our key values that we offer to that industry in that our software is accepted at the highest level. They call it TRL9. So it's the proven in, the, in battle and, and you can be used in the, in the field of operation. Um, but um, you know, we were also working a lot of commercial industries. Uh, I do agree. I think eventually 
um, we're going to need something like the FAA when we get fleets of these vehicles out there. How do you manage, you know, traffic on the roads? How do you coordinate that? How do you, I mean, how do you manage traffic in the skies when they're, um, when they're autonomous drones flying people around and, and that just becomes an extension of cars on the road? Does there need to be some harmonized rules about doing that? Like who gets to park where? Um, and, and then just, you know, once we get to a certain level of mass adoption, there's a whole lot of optimization we can do around, you know, streetlights and on and off ramps and who's going to set the regulations for doing that. And then uh, on top of that, all the, the safety requirements. Um, I wouldn't say it's necessary now because I don't think anybody knows what should be regulated. And and if we uh, are, as an industry, are careful enough um, that as we figure this out and that we're making safety of the you know utmost priority and we're always doing things to improve safety and not make it worse, um, then, uh, then hopefully we can spend a few years sort of figuring out how this is going to work before we have to uh, go through the extreme effort of regulations, which is is never easy getting people to agree. So good to have some, you know, examples of how to do it well before we have to uh, write it down on paper. Mm-hmm. And to your point about starting slow and building your way out with respect to 5G, I mean, it seems to me that you would, that one should apply the same approach to, well, deployment of anything in this case. So speaking of standardizations, I mean, it seems to me that whether it's what you guys are doing with RTI or really anybody else besides, there, it seems to me there'd be a huge incentive for both companies like RTI or anyone else and municipalities to really work together. And so to that end, I've often been a huge proponent of starting to allow much more widespread deployment and testing of any sort of autonomous vehicle technology on, for instance, bus lanes or maybe certain stretches of carpool lanes on freeways. Um, but there seems to be kind of a big disconnect as between the companies developing this and the municipalities themselves. And with my background as an attorney, I'm just sort of wondering why is this gap not being bridged or more quickly? It just doesn't seem like it's happening. Um, what do you think about that insofar as like, to what extent would it really benefit and help, I guess, expedite all the work that you guys are doing, for instance, being able to have some sort of closer, closer relationship with municipalities? Yeah, well, I think that is is definitely beneficial, and I think um, where you see uh, that happening, you see more testing and deployments done. We've seen certain municipality and states that are more uh, amenable to doing testing in their in the local area, and I think that that helps uh, immensely. Um, we're, uh, we're being a, a building block for building these systems, we're not directly involved in any of these sort of discussions with municipalities, but. Um, on the other hand, we are working on other projects related to smart cities and and um, uh, you know smart energy, which definitely involve municipalities. And, and and as you can expect, those projects move a lot slower. So I think, from my experience, the problem probably isn't a lack of willingness to do it, but really two completely different culture about how fast you move and what's important. You know cities have a whole different criteria on, on what is important to them and, and how they behave than a business that's trying to get to market quickly and, and make money. So, I, I mean, I, I think from my you know personal view is that we need to have the companies showing how it can be done first in real world deployments and showing that these um, solutions are working before the cities are really going to understand how it impacts them in any wide way. Certainly there are lots of cities that do and they're being proactive, but I wouldn't say that's generally the case. And I think it's the kind of thing you have to show, like, here's the example, here's how it works. You know, 
here's how it can integrate with your public transit here can it how it can integrate with your bus lanes and and then you may be able to have a more productive conversation with with some other um you know, governments and municipalities and agencies. So as always, then in this case, we have an autonomous chicken and egg that we have to kind of circumnavigate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I, I think you're right. You know, find the visionaries, uh, work with them, prove that it works, and then you can start to work your way through, um, you know, uh, the leading edge adopters and, and eventually to mainstream. But mm -hmm. it takes time. Right. Not to mention the social elements that eventually inevitably get brought up insofar as even something as seemingly mundane, but really controversial as even congestion pricing and that sort of thing. Right. So there's a, there's both the practical element uh, as well as the, yeah, the social element. Um, you know, I, I wanted to ask another uh, quick question here in the few minutes we have left. Um, what about simulations? So we talked briefly about this, this idea of standardizing everything going forward. Um, what about on the simulation side of things? I mean, so the, the 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 framework that you guys are developing, could this be? Well, let me actually let me let me skip to the end of my question here. I'm imagining a future where everything, even down to simulation, is also standardized. So, to put it another way, perhaps overly optimistically, I would imagine that eventually, uh, AV companies, meaning both from the hardware side as well as the software side, should be able to effectively validate their entire stack of well, the entire vehicle before then testing it in the real world. Now, obviously, we're seeing a lot of simulations, certainly, but again, none of it's standardized. Could your framework be used to help build out just such a simulation? Uh, certainly, yeah. Um, and, and standardization is a tricky thing because sometimes it helps innovation by ensuring that groups of developers and companies can work better together more efficiently, and sometimes it hurts innovation because it says, you know, I have to do it this way and maybe oh, right. that, that doesn't work yeah. for some new, you know, use case or model. Um, but but we're involved in simulation in a few different markets. Um, I wouldn't say that DDS as a standard is widely adopt, adopted within simulation itself, but certainly connecting different simulated systems together. It's really good at that. So uh, this is, this is um, in training simulations, we're going to connect the real world to a uh, virtual world, or we want to run scenarios where you've taken data from the real world and want to recreate them in a virtual world or even vice versa. And, and, and you can do that really well because um, of the nature of the standard and it's, called data centric, which really makes the data the most important element within your network. And you're really just talking about how do I deal with data, whether you're in the real world or the virtual world, you're really dealing with the same type of data. So if you have the format the same and the, the data model the same, then you can move from one to the other somewhat transparency, transparently. So if you wanted a data for a sort of model or in a standard for simulating and then executing in the real world and going back and forth, then then DDS would be a great standard to build that on. And, and we do see some of our customers doing that, uh, not standardized, but they're doing it internally so they can go back and forth, um, turning that into a, a standard that everybody uses, obviously a lot more work, but certainly there's a potential and opportunity there. Uh-huh, I see. So I guess for my final question, uh, which uh, is always a tricky one to ask, but I like to kind of bring in the human element to all this because it's all good and well to discuss the technical aspects, but it's all for nothing if we can't get society behind it. What are your thoughts on this social element, on this human element, the, the acceptance question of autonomous cars? What's it going to take? I mean, never mind the fact that at least, especially in North America, but elsewhere besides, we've, we've got a very emotional bond to the you know two cars. And I've often suggested, for instance, that once – 
you have a truly driverless car, not even a steering wheel, my assumption is that would finally delete the, the emotional bond. But that's obviously a long ways out. So it's this transition phase that's so tricky. What do you yeah. optimistically think? What's it going to take? We're going to need a huge phase shift here in society, right? Is it just a financial incentive that's going to get people to say, hey, this is just better? I don't think there's one answer because I think think we're seeing a lot of a lot of people, especially younger people, that um, embrace this type of change very quickly when it helps them. Um, and and so you'll if you if you rely on Uber today and you don't have your own car and you rely on Uber and you're maybe live in an urban center and that's how you get around, I think the shift to autonomous vehicles is is nothing, right? It's just really no different. The car comes, picks you up, and takes you where you want to go. You just have to trust that it's not going to get an accident. I mean, I was just going to say that's my assumption as well too, but obviously that still requires a leap of faith insofar as, hey, yeah. going from a driver vehicle to a non-driver vehicle, there is that leap there still. <laughs> right, right. But I think we'll we'll get there sort of incrementally. Um, you know, people will get exposed to different types of autonomy. And I think that's uh, sort of the second part you know, out of three in my answer to your question is a lot of these autonomy features are being deployed incrementally. So I think OEMs that still want to sell cars to people and have people own cars or adding in lots of features that would be level two plus now. So those those cars are going to get so close to level three um, that they'll be indistinguishable for level three. And if you call level three means you don't have to have your hands on the steering wheel anymore. We're not there yet. We're going to get really close. Once we're at that stage and we can say, okay, you can disengage for days or or sorry for minutes or hours on your drive then the leap to autonomous vehicles may not be so hard and and i think we see that with tesla owners now and and um a few people in our company have of teslas and and they just get better and better and better over time at handling situations and this is in the bay area on the highway and and in different scenarios where they're they're supposed to run you know essentially unassisted where you're just watching what they're doing. So I I sort of see that transition as more gradual. And then I think the third part of your question um, is this whole, like the the emotional attachment to cars. It'll definitely change. Um, I don't think it'll be the same type of attachment. And so those people that love cars may not love an autonomous vehicle in the same way, but we're also really emotionally attached to our phones, which is a convenience device and it's not a car and it's all about the tech that's in it so if we do if we write the software correctly and we have that sort of more tech approach to autonomous vehicles then i think there still be will still be that kind of brand loyalty and attachment to different autonomous brands because of you know that's the tech that they prefer or or whatever it may be um certainly easier to switch you can you know stop instantly and move to a different autonomous vehicle ride sharing program but um there will be some some emotional attachment i think although it will be different so that's a really good point um i i've always been sort of the stereotypical car guy <laughs> my dad used to race i've done track days i love cars and people get really surprised when i say how much i love tesla and i always have to clarify exactly what you just said. I don't love Tesla because I think it's the greatest car. I just love Teslas because they're just really cool 
pieces of technology. <laughs> uh, they're just a very cool thing. So that's a really good distinction. Hey, do you, can I keep you for two more, three more minutes, perhaps? Because you said a thing. I just, I just had to fire back a question at you if, if you have three minutes. Sure. Um, so speaking of Tesla, and indeed the, this transition through the various levels of autonomy. So having experienced Tesla's on autopilot for about an hour at a time through Silicon Valley at midnight with no traffic on the road, it kind of brought to my attention, rather alarmingly so, this notion of, I guess it's called the, um, the paradox of safety, right? So the safer a thing gets, the more risky or careless one becomes, right? Um, and in my case, the issue was driving at night, at midnight, in no other car, as you say, no, no traditional car have I ever really come close to falling asleep. But in the Tesla, try as I might, I was just drifting off. And this has happened more than once. And it's not because I said to myself, oh, it's safe. I'm not going to crash and die. Although ironically, of course, let's face it, if you fell asleep in a regular car, you would likely die. If you fell asleep in a Tesla, you probably wouldn't. But you are more likely to fall asleep. So that transition phase, how is that supposed to be addressed? That's a tricky thing, I think. Yeah, and I think that is a a big problem. Um, And it didn't start because of uh, autonomous vehicles. It started with things like... uh, automatic transmissions and anti-lock brakes and all these other things that become more complicated and placate you because, you know, it's easier to drive. I don't have to pay attention as much. I don't have to worry about what gear I am. And now it's more mindless and uh, we pay attention less. And I think uh, I'm not necessarily an expert on that, but it seems uh, from, from, you know, what I've learned uh, listening to experts is that, this is part of the problem why we're not seeing deaths because of car accidents go down as dramatically as they have in the past. Like when we added um, seatbelts, that was a huge advantage in, you know, people not dying, but now we, we really don't have anything else to do in the car. And you're right. As we add these autonomous vehicle, autonomous functions, maybe we won't get the full effect of them because people become more complacent but perhaps, I mean, I would say, what choice do we have except to do it faster till we get to the point where they cannot have an accident, even if they do fall asleep? Like, perhaps the car will stop. Said, You're sleeping. I'm pulling, o- pulling over o- to the side of the road until you have a nap and wake up. And I won't even drive if you're sleeping. Like, the car could make that decision um, if we implement that. So, so I, I, I really, I don't think we're going to solve the problem unless we continue to move forward and try and find the right solutions. And, and we certainly don't know what they are yet. I agree. I mean, that's reassuring to hear you say that. Uh, I agree completely. Well, cool, Bob. Well, look, with respect for your time, we've gone a bit over anyway already. Um, but look, thank you so much, obviously, for joining me this morning. And what can I say? I wish you a happy holidays and a happy new year 2020. <laughs> Great. Thank you. Happy new year to you. All righty. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. All right. Well, that's a wrap for today and indeed this week. Uh, as I said, hopefully I'll have a regular news episode out on Tuesday, followed by a proper season four finale with my two founding partners over at Hogan Co., Felix Dohmeyer and Martin Adler. But uh, no promises just yet. As always, be sure to follow me on all social media at Autonomous Hogue and, of course, our new consulting firm at Hogan Co. And don't forget to leave five stars and a written review over on Apple Podcasts if you're a fan. All right. Thanks so much again for listening. Have a wonderful weekend. Bye-bye.